Andy Roddick is a winner. He won the U.S. Open once. He was at the top of the world. But a Federer or a Nadal or a Djokovic are champions. They won it over 20 times. There was a study done by Sports Illustrated in the U.S. in the late 80s that I consider a landmark study. They tried to figure out what's the difference. The most important factor they found, which I just found fascinating, it was life-changing, is a concept called sense for the historic. What are the historic moments in my life that may never happen again? I'm not failing. I'm going to be perfect. Hi, everyone. Welcome to How to Live, a podcast that explores ways to live a good life. I'm your host, Sharad Lal. This is episode 34. Many of us are very passionate about sports. What are some life lessons that we can learn from sports? That's the focus of today's episode. We have with us Olympic coach and successful CEO, Jim Lafferty. Jim is the CEO of Fine Hygiene Holdings in Dubai. Prior to this, He's had a stellar career across the globe with the most prestigious companies in the world, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, BAT, among others. Having started his career in the United States, Jim has worked across the globe, North Africa, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and Asia. He's been awarded the CEO of the Year Award by Burj CEO and GC Awards. Forbes magazine has named Jim among the top 50 CEOs in the Middle East. Alongside his illustrious career, Jim has coached national-level athletes in the United States, Nigeria, and recently he's even coached the Philippines Olympics athletics teams for the 2016 and the 2021 Olympic Games. Jim's always maintained a healthy lifestyle, having run over 30 marathons. In 2017, he became the Philippines national champion in powerlifting. In our conversation, Jim and I talk about the parallels between life and sports, the importance of desire, the difference between winners and champions, how hedging our bets and having a plan B can be counterproductive and being uncomfortable. Jim takes lessons from sports and shows us how to use them both in personal and professional life. I was looking forward to this interview. Back in 2005, when I was with Procter & Gamble, I came across a memo on swimmers versus water walkers that Jim had written. This memo had traveled across continents, across the globe, and had turned viral within the PNG world. We talk about this memo as well. But before getting to the interview, thank you for your support. With your support, we are now listened to in 85 countries, over 750 cities worldwide. We ranked in the top 5% in the world. If you haven't already, please do consider subscribing and leaving us a rating. Thank you in advance. If you're new to this podcast, you could consider listening to episode 6 on Stoicism, which was the most downloaded episode of 2022. Now, here's the interview. Hi, Jim. Welcome to How to Live. How are you doing this morning in Dubai? Good, Sharad. How are you? I'm doing well. Congratulations on all your achievements. And I've noticed a lot of the wisdom that you bring in that resonates so strongly with people is based on sports and fitness. So I was very curious, where did that interest in sports and fitness start? Was there any event that kicked it off and how did it come about? Thank you. It's a good question. I can't really recall a specific event. Children grow up with different interests and I certainly was one of those kids that gravitated to sports. I loved them all and my whole life was about sports and following professional athletes at that time. Now, a part of sporting success, not all of it, is genetics. And there's an old saying in my track and field coaching days, it's very true, which is if you want to run the 100 meters, 
pick your parents carefully. Because 100 <laughs> meters is genetic to a great degree. Everybody can get faster, but you can't take a slow person and make them run a, a 9.5 second 100 meters. Now, it doesn't mean that anyone can't find their success in a given sport. And there's obviously a huge element of hard work. And that's where I think the first lesson came through. I was a genetically average athlete. I wasn't the fastest kid on the street. and I was never picked last, but I was always picked in the middle. I was probably just an average athlete. And I learned my first big lesson there, which was how much desire, how much heart you have is a big determinant because I've beaten many athletes who were genetically more gifted than me, but they weren't prepared to work as hard. They weren't prepared to develop. When I was playing American baseball, for example, I'm maybe seven or eight years old, I was not very good. And when I would come up to bat, my, my teammates would moan and groan because they thought I would strike out. And I did strike out pretty much every time. But then that summer, my dad pitched to me and he bought me a like a pitching, uh, a hitting thing. It was a simple device you put in the backyard that you practice hitting. And I went out there every day and I broke a bunch of bats and I learned how to hit. And then the next year, I was actually one of the stars of the team. And then I learned a huge lesson there, which was the role of discipline and hard work. And that I wasn't the greatest genetically gifted baseball player, but I was able to become good through hard work. And then even though I ended up going into business and I've been in consumer goods for the last 37 years, I always kept my toes in the sports world as a personal passion. And I started to more and more realize that there's a parallel reality. Anyone who's reached the pinnacle of their profession has learned life lessons that can be reapplied to, to business. And so I have become an advocate of taking life lessons from sports and then reapplying it to business as both principle and, and as a teaching tool because most people have a love of sports. And when you use sports as a teaching tool, it, engages your audience more. If I can take something from our life that brings joy, like football mm. in the countries like where I work in, where football is the sport and use football as a teaching mechanism to the sense of examples of how to learn and be better in the business world, then my audience is much more attuned to the message. The message is much more receptive and that they believe the message. I loved what you said about how discipline as well as determination quite often can trump even genetics. You can work really hard and do well. If I remember you, your story as a kid in Cincinnati where you were doing fitness and sports and then through your determination, you got into PNG and the management path. I know there's an interesting story there. I'd love to hear you talk that story of how you got into PNG from the sports industry. I was a fitness instructor, and then I'd started my own company on the side because this was 1984. And this was the beginning of the fitness boom when companies started to think about this concept that a healthy employee is a good employee. I happen to be in Cincinnati, my hometown, and there's a company, a big global company that's based in Cincinnati. There's not many, but there's one there. And the name of the company was Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble has been renowned as an employer as being quite forward-thinking. So they decided to dabble in some corporate wellness, and they contracted with me, with our company, to do some classes. I had this guy in the program from P&G. He was a brand manager. He comes in a suit and tie, but I have to get him down to his underwear. And when he was in his underwear, he's a bit vulnerable and a bit, the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. <laughs> and he says to me, uh, you ought to do what I do. And I say, what do you do? And he says, I'm in brand management. And then I say, what in the world is brand management? I don't know what that means. He explains it to me. I like what I hear. And so he sets up an interview and I take a test and I pass that. 
I do a screening interview. I obviously, I guess I pass that. And then they set up this full panel of interview with three people successively and they make a decision. Yes or no. Back in those days in 84, you wait for a letter. You don't get an SMS and there's no portal to go in and see how you're doing. You wait. And I got a letter in the mail and I rip it open and I'm all excited. And it's a classic corporate letter. So paragraph one, they set you up. It's a bunch of basically BS and ask it. <laughs> and Jim, we love meeting you. You're so interesting. We don't see people with your background. All your coaching and sports experience is very fascinating. We just loved your stories and things you've learned and stuff. Then paragraph two, they cut to the chase, which is what's the reality. And they say, however, after careful consideration of all the factors involved, we decided that you're probably not a perfect fit for P&G and we don't think it would be right to make an offer. You're going to have an amazing career. We wish you the best of luck the rest of your life. Now, the majority of the world would say, okay, forget you. I'll go find a job somewhere else. And there was a part of me that would say that, but there was another part that said, I like this company a lot. I was working with a lot of their executives. There's a value system in P&G. It's very different from the rest of the world. They really care about doing the right thing and values. And I felt that I could do the job. I was just dumb enough to think I could do it. And so I was taught by my parents were children of the depression and got married in the middle of the Great Depression in the 1930s. I was taught you can do anything if you fight and if you work hard enough. And so I went to the library. I looked up who's the head of HR. There's no internet. And it's this guy named Sam Pruitt, who's the worldwide head of HR at P&G. And I write him this thing note, not rude, but scathing. And I say, dear Mr. Pruitt, interviewing is not a science. It's an art. And that's awful artists in that place. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> P&G was so stunned that this letter this, from this 21-year-old kid, they said, okay, because I'm in Cincinnati, this is easy. There's no flights. There's no, it's not a big deal. He says, go and re-interview him again. Find three different people. And in fact, you should have them interview in food and beverage because they're a bit more entrepreneurial than the soap guys. See, I was interviewing with the soap, the laundry detergent people. These guys are like the blue blood of Proctor and not always the ones that will think off the straight line. So I interviewed with these food and beverage guys and lo and behold, they make me an offer. When I got in, I was so intimidated. I was just scared to death because look, my boss, great man, Tom Hanley, what, what was his background, MBA from University of Chicago, one of the top five business schools in the world. I shared an office with a guy named Mike Halloran. And I say to Mike, where'd you go to school? And he's, oh, I got a, an MBA from Sloan School of Business at MIT. And then they had this new person join with me, Eileen, her name was Eileen. And I say, where'd you go to school? And she's, I just graduated with my MBA from Harvard. And there I am. I'm younger than all of them. I've got a bachelor's degree in psych and physiology from the University of Cincinnati, the local hometown school that they don't even recruit at. I came home to my wife. I said, I'm never going to make it here. All these people are like brains. They're like the smartest people in the world. Everybody had an MBA but me. I was running scared. I had a baby, a wife, and I was terrified. And so I basically worked my ass off and I worked harder than everyone else. And I was the hardest worker there. And I started to learn something, which was, you can win with desire. And I learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life, which is I can coach just about anything. I can coach you how to write a business memo. I can coach you how to run a project and build a critical path. I just did this with my team the other night. I can teach you how to give a speech and I can teach you how to look at advertising and how to do financial. And all this stuff's teachable. I can teach you how to lift weights and how to run a hundred meters faster. All this stuff's easy. There's one thing I can't teach. And unfortunately, it's the most important thing in life. 
I can't coach desire. You've hustled your way out there with pure determination. You fought to get there. And then when you get there, you see all these smart people and you say, you know what? I'm going to work harder than anyone else. And through that, you were able to go so much further in PNG. I had the good fortune of working in PNG as well. We didn't work in the same regions, but there was some work that you did which traveled the globe. There was a memo that you wrote which was about swimmers versus water walkers. That traveled all the way across the globe. That was so powerful. I'd love to hear you talk about that analogy. If you look at swimmers versus water walkers, it was written in 2004. It's addressed to the Western Europe family care team. They were these people that said, look, I've been winning my whole life, and you're telling me I'm not number one rated anymore. I can't handle it. And they couldn't get it through their head. And so I had to explain to them in a simple way and find a different analogy that says, you're in a different world now. This is PNG where everybody's freaking good. And if I would say it to them that way, they would say to me, yeah, but I came in from, from University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School of Business, and I'm, I don't get it. I was number one. I say, I know, but you're not number one here. And everybody here went to those schools and everybody here was good and everybody was a top student. And so I came up with this idea of swimmers or water walkers. And I'm a big believer in finding analogies that make things easy to teach. It, what I say in that memo is not different than anyone else has ever said. I just make it more fun and make it more learnable. And so you say, everybody that comes in this company can swim, but there are these few that can walk on the water and that's the people that get the top ratings. And what separates them is this and this and this and this. Now, I wrote that to basically target a couple of people in my team. But what I did was I sent it to everyone because the people that I was sending it to, their ego is so big that if, it, if I addressed it just to them, they would throw it out because they say, oh, my God, mm. writing is just for me. This isn't fair. So sometimes as a coach, what you have to do is you have to coach everyone equally, even though not everyone needs the coaching so that the people that need it can swallow the medicine. And, and that's an important thing. Now, I send it out to everyone, and suddenly the thing goes all over the place, and people share it around. And, all that stuff. and then I'm asked to do talks on it, and then the board of directors shared it, and the chairman at that time of Intuit, Scott Cook, was on the board of P&G, and then he calls me and says, I need you to come out to see me in Silicon Valley and talk to my people on this. And then it went all over Silicon Valley, and I went to Apple, and it was like crazy. That was one that went all over, but it was a, just a simple, and what attracted everyone to it was just the analogy of, are you a swimmer, are you a water walker? If you read the, what the separates them, the internals, there's nothing magical and new in there. If you could talk a little bit about what separates them, that'll be great, just the broad points. The first one, and the one that was most important to me to get across to people, was that in moments of crisis, the swimmer looks for a way to explain how to get their base down. I'll give you an example. I was working on office coffee with Folgers and we were selling coffee into offices. I was in the away from home business. And we had cut this deal with the retail Folgers brand that they were going to give us all this money to advertise Folgers on the morning talk shows as people were driving to work. It was called drive time. But then Folgers retail at the last second says, you know what? We need the money on our business. We cut you to zero. So $7 million went to zero. And the natural tendency of anybody would be, we have to now revise our whole budget. We have to revise our volume. We can't deliver the volume. How can we deliver the volume with 7 million gone? 
And this is in the 80s. It was huge. So I wrote to my boss. I said, I've got an idea. We can still deliver all of it without the radio. Screw them. And it was bump the direct marketing and do some other elements, change the whole marketing mix. But I showed him the data and I said, we can do the whole thing. Let's just forget them. And so we go forth to management and they're expecting us to manage the number down. And we say, we're going to stay with the number and we're going to deliver less 7 million. And they were like, what? And we say, yeah, we can do it. And so the number one thing of being a swimmer, water walker, is in a crisis, the swimmer finds a way to justify a lower base and the water walker mm-hmm. figures out a way to still deliver. That's the difference. I've cut marketing budgets on purpose. What I wanted to do was see what I got. Do I have problem solvers or a lot of complaining? And we can't do it. We don't have a media budget. And I actually had some marketers quit. And I was so happy they left. Because if you quit because your budget got cut, you are not a marketer at all. You're not even a remote. Marketers, I can name companies that do amazing things with no budgets. We have a company here in the region in the diaper business that's doing better than us. They don't even have budgets. Their marketing is so creative. They find ways to get viral marketing. Great marketing can be done without a budget. That's such a good point, Jim, because you cut to the core of things. Like when you're in PNG, you're looking at gaming the system, sandbagging, higher budget, lower targets, managing expectation. And you came up with saying that that is all bullshit. Let's focus on delivering. We are marketers. Whatever happens, we have to find ways to deliver. And that was your first point. That's why it resonated so strongly, if I understand right. Look, I'll give you an example. I don't like either person on a personal level. But I'll give you an example of two great marketers out there in the world today. Elon Musk and Donald Trump. Trump controlled the entire narrative in the media without ever spending any money on advertising. By being provocative, by knowing how to play Twitter, his tweets were news in and of itself. And Musk is doing the same right now. Musk is all over the news every day. He's on the headlines every single day of BBC, MSNBC, NBC, Fox, name it. He's He's not spending any media money. Let's put aside the politics and stuff. I'm not a big supporter, but I try to learn from them. I can say I don't agree his politics. and Okay, that's fine. But I have to respect some of the things that he's done. And as a marketer, he's outstanding. He's on another league. And that's what I'm looking for. People know how to get in the news, how to make the right decisions, how to get in the press, how to do advertising that goes viral because it's so damn good. That's what the great do. They figured out they, the less great cry and quit and say, they cut my budget. I can't do anything. I'm, this is BS. I'm going to go find another. You know what? These are not champions. These are not the best, not water walkers. And then the water walker just says, you know what? I'm going to figure it out. That's what the champion does is they just, they do it anyway. They do it anyway. Yeah. And talking about greatness and champions, what do you think are the big differences between winners and champions? Everyone wins, but there's a winner and there's a champion. What's the difference between them? The difference visibly is the winner will win from time to time. But if, let's just pick some sports here. Let's take tennis. Andy Roddick, the old American player, is a winner. He won the U.S. Open once. He was at the top of the world. He won one of the Grand Slams. But a Federer or a Nadal or a Djokovic are champions. They won it over 20 times, 20, 21, 22. That, these are the number of times they've won a Grand Slam. There's a difference. Roddick also won a Grand Slam, but he did it one time. At one point, he was at top of his game. There's a consistency of a Federer or a Nadal or a Djokovic that over years and even decades, they're at the top of their game. That's a champion. It's about consistency and repetitiveness. Now, 
What separates them? There was a study done by Sports Illustrated in the US in the late 80s that I consider a landmark study for any business person, which was they went and interviewed individuals and sports teams and they tried to figure out why does a Bayern Munich win time after time? And then why does another team win one year and then you never see them again? Why do the Chicago Bulls win six times and the Portland Trailblazers won only once? What's the difference? Not in a negative way. And they came up with a range of factors. And the most important factor they found, which I just found fascinating, it was life-changing, is a concept called sense for the historic. And sense for the historic is the person's innate ability to recognize the most important moments in their life when they have to be perfect. Now, I'm not perfect. Sharad, you're not perfect. Nobody that will listen to your podcast is perfect. But we are all capable of moments and of perfection. We're capable of being perfect in situations. Have you ever had 100% on a test? That was perfect. You had that on that 100%, you were perfect on that time. Now, other times you had 80% or 90%, then you weren't perfect. But we've all had 100% scores on a test. We were perfect for that period of time. We were perfect. Now, the sense of the historic is saying, what are the historic moments in my life that may never happen again? And I'm not failing. I'm going to be perfect. And the greatest athletes recognize that. So when you go to the, if, if you take the starting line, of races. I know Olympic champions who at the starting line were telling people at the Olympic final, they were saying, I just want all of you to know that I'm the gold medal is mine and you guys can race for silver. And they knew in their heart that they had trained harder than anyone else and they were going to win and that they weren't going to fail. And they were on a perfect race. And the epitome of this for me was Michael Johnson, who ran in 13 Olympic finals and world championship finals. Now, these are the sense for the historic moments. I've seen Johnson. I knew him and coached against him and everything back in the early 80s. I've seen him lose a ton of races. But not all races are equal. Some are the Olympics or the Worlds. This is now, we call it clutch performance in a similar concept. But what are these moments when you just don't, failure is not an option. There is no plan B. Plan B sucks. We don't want a plan B. And he ran 13 times in the Olympics and World Championship final. Now, these are the two pinnacle events of track and field. 13 times he ran the final, 13 golds. He never lost. That's sense for the historic, and it's, a, it's an attitude. You'll see before Wimbledon, you'll see people, one person will come and say, I am just so happy to be in the final tomorrow and to be on center. Court. <laughs> it's just such an honor. This whole thing's a dream. I don't really care what happens. I'm, I'm just happy to be here. They're going to lose. <laughs> 98% of the time they're going to lose because the sense for the historic is this idea of I might never get here again. I can't count on next year. I might have an injury. I might, I might have a family. I might lose my interest. I, things could happen. I could get sick. I may never be here again. And so I'm not failing. I'm not losing. The only option is to win. And you go out and you prepare yourself mentally to do that. And you play for victory. And you see the great champions like, how many times has Nadal come down in the fifth set when he's behind and wins and come from behind? The Australian Open a year and a half ago, when he came from behind to beat Medvedev, I, I was going to turn it off because it was over. He was down two sets to zero. It's over. And, tired and-, and then he wins three sets at his age and wins the Australian Open. I just, this is sense for the historic. He's, I'm 36 years old. 
I'm 35 years old at, at that time. This may not happen again. I'm not. Lo- I'm going to win this one more time, and I'm not losing. And I, you fi- he finds a gear, and if the other person's thinking, well, if I lose today, I still got next year. That that's not sense for the historic. I love the sense of the historic to get there for athletes like Nadal or Michael Jordan. We talk about hard work, but there's also this mental prep. There's there's no option B. I have to do it. How do you get there to that mental prep that you have to do it? The thoughts, there's pressure, there's other things putting it out. How do you get to that state? Yeah, it's interesting that the movie Pursuit of Happiness, which maybe you saw with Will Smith, it was based on a true story. Yes. A guy named Chris Gardner. Now, Chris, I think we can call each other friends. He's a good man. Uh, I know the real Chris Gardner in real life, and he spoke to my team a couple of years ago here in the region, and he's an amazing guy. And he has, everybody asked him the same question. They say, how did you like live in a bathroom in a bus station and then go to work and get dressed up to go to work as a stockbroker and get your kid to school and do all this stuff? And you had no money and you're figuring this stuff out. And how did you even do that? Everybody has the same question. And his answer is just brilliant. The same. He says, plan B sucks. Hmm. There is no plan B. There's only plan A and you have to make it work. And there are situations in life where you do need a plan B and you can do a plan B, but there are also situations in life where there can be no plan B. And we have to be wise enough to know that not everything in life is a sense of the historic moment. You have to pick and choose your battles. Now, if you're sitting with a doctor and you see this all the time, my friend, come on, a guy goes to the doctor and he's not feeling well. And the doctor runs the test and the doctor sits him down and says, look, I got some bad news. You, you got lung cancer. You have lung cancer and, you know, you're overweight, you're smoking, you don't eat right. And this is going to get you because it's like already spreading into lymph nodes and other organs and you can beat it, but you've got to like completely change your life. In my view, that's a sense for the historic moment. Either you decide that day to get your act together and eat right and put the cigarettes aside and change everything about you and say, I want to live for my kids. Or you say, I don't know, I'll just do the medicine and I'll go through chemo and I'll do what I got to do. But you can't take away my pizza. You're not going to take away my beer. You're not going to take away my cigs. I enjoy this stuff. I want to live my life. I want to enjoy my life. They end up dead. You know, you have to decide the most important moments of your life. And when failure is not an option, I see it in a health sense. We're a wellness company. I see it every day. I'm in a region that the diets are quite awful. And they lead to diabetes and heart disease. I mean, the standard diet here is so full of processed carbohydrates and just heavy carbohydrates. You've got high insulin levels. It's a region that suffers from hyperinsulinemia, suffers from metabolic syndrome, suffers from diabetes and prediabetes, suffers from obesity, and you've got higher than average smoking rates. I see people all the time that are on a one-way trip to the to ending their life prematurely. Now, you get a sudden scare like that. I'm just going to keep on going. Thank you, doctor. You know, it's freedom of choice. But there will be other people say, this is a sense for the historic moment. I can reverse this stuff now. And I'm going to join a gym and I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to do all this stuff. I mean, it's serious. That's sense for the historic. It's not in everybody, but we're all capable of it. We're all capable of it in our life. And it's recognizing the moments in life when there is no plan B. That's it. There is no plan B. Such a powerful example as well. This is something that is applicable to life, that you will have those moments where you can make those changes and recognizing that this is a moment where there is no plan B. I have to go all in. It is such a powerful lesson we can take from sports. 
If people in the world would just learn that simple concept, recognize the times in your life when failure is not an option. It can be with your child, can be with your marriage, it can be with your job, can be with a number of things. There are times when you don't miss. The last simple example I've given, and people can relate to this. When I get young people come to me for an interview, they want to work in our company. They show up 40 minutes late because of traffic. They're already done. When I was interviewing at P&G and there was traffic, I was always there an hour before. I plugged in the contingency there might be an accident. You plug in there are moments in life when you don't fail. And that means being an hour early. You don't miss. And I've never missed a flight in my life. When the, I've had these executives working with me. I missed flights. I overslept. We had a huge meeting in the company in Dubai a couple months ago, and we flew people in. I'm running the session. I'm the CEO of the company. And one of the senior guys like, is in his room asleep and sleeps through. And the, I had to send people up the room and knock on the door. My respect for him just plunges. Are you kidding me? You're going to meet with your CEO. You set four alarms. <laughs> and you don't go out the night before. When I would go on business trips and I was young, I carried an alarm clock with me. And then I also had an alarm clock in the hotel room. And I also had the operator call me. I did all three every time. I had multiple times where the front desk never woke me up. They say, do you have a one-on-one ache? Do you want a wake-up call? I say, yes, I want it at 5.30 a.m. They didn't call. And I've had the alarm clock in the hotel not function. But it didn't matter because I did it three ways. I think sensory historic is one of the easiest ways that people can improve their life. And this is true for running your family. Graduations, family reunions, your wedding anniversary, you don't miss. Thank you for contextualizing it across various parts of life. People can get it. Jim, one of the things I've really admired about you, you take a conscious effort to mentor people and then you take them along with you. And so I'd love to hear you talk about what motivated you to do this and how do you do it? I think that goes back to my coaching days. I discovered a great joy in life. It's fine to get an award and go up on stage and they hand you a, tr a trophy or a plaque. I, that's fine. And I'm always proud of those moments. But it's nothing like when you see someone you have helped achieve something. Oh my God, what a rush. And then they say, yeah, I wouldn't have been here without this person, that person. This is a rush beyond belief that it, and it multiplies your impact on the world. I mean, when people talk about personal mission, I agree that it's important. I don't think it should be overthought. I have a very simple personal mission. When you're born in this earth, you have three options in life. Option one is you can make the world a better place. Option two is you can make the world a worse place. And option three is you can have no impact whatsoever. I, from very young age, I was like, I want to make the world a better place. I want to help people. I want to do this. That led into a coaching. I've had that view my whole life. I want to leave a positive impact on the world. I want someone to be able to say someday, this place was better because he was here. And so if I'm helping people sell more soap and being a better person, I'm just as fulfilled as I am if I'm coaching a kid to run the 100 meters faster. I got great joy out of seeing young people that have worked for me and what they become. And they say, you, know, you were a part of it, or they put something on LinkedIn. This is a huge rush. And because I'm not looking for the gratification of saying anything, it doesn't matter because there's lots of people that I was pretty rough on them because they needed it. I always tried to do what was right for them, but not people often in going through it don't realize what's right for them. It only comes later. My kids have come to me, come clean on the famous Christmas of 93. By 93, I was two years in Morocco. I was a marketing manager in P&G. I was an expat and I was making the first money of my life. And we had money. For the first time, I had three kids. We had a little bit of money. And I'd never had money before that. I mean, when my son was born, I couldn't buy a baby bed. So he slept 
in my shirt drawer in my chest of drawers for all my wow. clothes. And he laid in, laid on top of my t-shirts. We didn't have money. I couldn't buy anything. I was making $5 an hour. We were poor. And so I finally had money. And so we had Christmas back in the US. We fly back to the US and my kids are opening their presents with grandma there and aunts and uncles, a big family get together. And I was getting worried about, were they getting spoiled? And my daughter opens up a present. And it's not what she wanted. She throws this like temper tantrum fit and crying and all this stuff. And I just blew a valve. I just exploded. And I picked up all three kids and I said, we're leaving right now. Now, this is Christmas morning, 10 a.m. We haven't had Christmas breakfast. And everybody's like, where are you going? I said, I'm taking them to the alcoholic drop-in center in downtown Cincinnati. And they're going to serve meals to homeless people. And they're going to learn about life. And I told the kids, bring all your presents. So I load them in the car and everybody's upset. And the grandparents, what, what's going on? But they can't say anything. It's, these are my kids. I take them to the alcoholic drop-in center and I line them up. And two of them were like waiter, waitresses. And my daughter, who was only three or four, she just stayed with me. And we cooked meals. We cooked lunch and dinner and we served them. And then they had a Christmas party at 6 p.m. And then I made my kids give all their presents away to poor kids on the street who didn't have any presents. They cried and they gave up their presence. And we're in this drop-in center. They're scared. Some of these guys are, there might be some mental illness involved. There's, and they're making weird noises and scaring. But my daughter would bring the food and one was pouring the iced tea and all that kind of stuff. Now, they never forgot. That's one of these things that like burned in their brain. And the, it wasn't maybe two years ago, we had this big family discussion. I remember when dad made us give the presence away. And all of them said it was like a defining moment in their life about giving. I had to make an intervention. I was on the way to raising spoiled rich kids and I had to make certain interventions to shock the system and decree gratitude. When you start crying over the quality of the Christmas present, we got a problem. We got a problem. I was taught you know, you're happy with every present you hug and kiss. No upset, no disappointment. And I never showed disappointment on a gift in my life. And I've done that in the workplace, not all positive reinforcement. You have to manage situationally. Thanks, Jim. If there's one piece of advice you'd like to give the listeners, what would that be? It, I think it's pretty easy for me is be uncomfortable. Take risks. Mm. Life goes by very quickly. Folks, if you're listening in on this, yesterday I held my eldest son, Michael, in my arms and he was a baby boy. Today he's a 37-year-old father of three. It went like this, the blink of an eye. I was a young guy in my 20s and 30s just yesterday, the always the youngest guy in the room. Now I'm the oldest guy in the room. It just happens quickly. Life's not a dress rehearsal. You don't get another shot at this. And too many people stay in their comfort zones. And I don't want to leave home. I'm, I like it here and all this. Go out and do things. Do things you don't like. Do things that scare you. Take on a new hobby that, you know, learn how to play the guitar. Do something you wanted to do. Learn another language. Take that job in that wild place and say, even at my age, I just moved here five years ago, Dubai, never lived in this part of the world before. And I would take the next job and go to a new place. I'm never too old to lose that sense of adventure and learn things, meet new people. I would be a lesser person today if I've never moved to Dubai, never worked for fine and never met these amazing people and never made new friends. I'd be a lesser person. So my advice is if you're comfortable, get uncomfortable. Because that's where you grow and that's where pride comes. And I, I honestly believe in my heart that the, the whole happiness drive today and the growth of antidepressants and the growth of therapy 
it's not something that just changed in this world. One of the things is, is we don't take risks anymore. We don't take risks. And the joy in life comes from succeeding. I moved to Morocco when I was when I was 28 and I had three kids. And nobody thought I could do it. I learned French from scratch and became fluent in the language. And I was successful in the sense of accomplishment, the sense of happiness. That, and to see my children be friends with people from all over the world and not see color, not see religion, not see passports. That all comes from being uncomfortable. And I spent time in tears of my eyes in the early days in Morocco when I didn't, I, I was so lonely and so scared and didn't know anything, couldn't speak to anybody, but you fight through it. And so the great joys in life of my whole life have been overcoming these challenges that come with being uncomfortable. So take the risk and go for it. Take that crazy assignment, leave the industry you're in, try a different industry and see what you can do. Spread your wings. You can always go back home. You can always go back to the company you're in. You can always go back to the industry. You can always go back and speak the language you want to speak. That's easy. Go out and try stuff. And that, that would be my big advice and live life every day. And don't look back with any regrets. Thank you, Jim. That is so powerful. I just have one last question. Yep. At the end of your life, how would you know you've lived a good life? I would be able to look out in the world, look at my children, look at my family, look at the people I've interacted with and say, I left them in a better place than if they hadn't ever had me. And that comes back to my original mission. I just want to make the world a little bit better. That's all. And that's my life mission. And that can be done by coaching athletes. That can be done by working in a company and giving back through CSR. It can, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to fulfill that mission. And people ask me sometimes, you're, you have these diverse things like CEO and coaching athletes and writing newspaper columns. Right? How does that all fit together? And I say, it's easy. It's all about improving the world just a little bit more. If people read my column and they are impacted and they like my writing, then I've helped them. If I've coached them and they're better, I've helped them. If my children are productive members of society and improving society and doing things in the world, then I raise them and I help them. That's all the, the whole mission. Jim, you're doing that. You're impacting so many people. You would have never heard of me till some time back. And I've been so impacted by the podcast that I've listened about you, the memos that you've sent. Congratulations on all the good service you're doing to all of us. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Thank you, Jim, for such an inspirational talk. This will resonate with many of us, not only those who love sports, but others as well. We'd like to leave you with this action step, which touched a deep chord within us, the sense of the historic. Reflect on three critical moments, sense of historic moments in your life where you showed up at your best. Why were these moments important? How did you show up? How did it change the trajectory of your life? After this, Reflect on two, three critical moments in life where you did not show up. And again, the same questions. Why were these moments important? How did you show up? And what could the trajectory of your life have been? Take some time, maybe half a day to do this and see what you find out about yourself. Best of luck. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with another episode two weeks from now on Valentine's Day, February 14th. The topic will be related to love. Hope you join us for that. Till next time, have a wonderful day ahead. Bye-bye.